There's only so many times you can look at yourself in the mirror whilst you're trying to get a vein in your neck with a syringe and go, this is a good look, because that's, you know. Who do you think is using cocaine here in the UK? I think it'd be easier to say who's not. The, the war on drugs is, is, is a ridiculous, failing system. My experience is not up for debate. Seven residential rehabs, 14 inpatient detoxes, getting nicked, homelessness. For an addict, you just keep going until you're trying to find this combination of things, juggling this equation to try and make yourself feel okay. I hope this helped, has helped someone. I hope there's someone out there. I said to you when we spoke yeah, on the phone, yeah. we might save someone's well, life. Yeah, we'll never meet them, yeah. and that doesn't matter. I know what it's like. You know, I know I've been there. I had the T-shirt, smoked the T-shirt, injected the T-shirt. Yeah. And, and I always talk about this because it's really important for people that might need to hear this. Welcome to the Eventful Lives podcast. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sports and music festival. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. If you haven't already, do us a favour, press the follow button and check us out at Dodge Woodall on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube, where we've now had over 80 million views. Simon Mason spent the 90s rubbing shoulders, partying and serving up drugs with rock and roll royalty. From his dealings with Oasis to his catastrophic downfall at the hands of heroin, Simon is a living and breathing warning of the destructive power of addiction. This is the eventful life of Mr. Simon Mason. It's an interesting one for me. This is something we've never gone down this route before and uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. So let's roll all the way back. Where did you grow up and tell me your journey and how you became a heroin addict? Right, so I'm going to try and be clever and I'm going to quote The Clash. And there's a lyric in a Clash song that says, I wasn't born so much as I fell out and no one seemed to notice me. We had a hedge back home in the suburbs over which I never could see. And it's from a song called Lost in the Supermarket by The Clash. So I fell out into the world in Western Supermare um, in 1968. I oh, know I look good for it. <laughs> right? um, and that's where I, my formative years were as a, as a young kid, very young kid. I had a mum and I had a dad and an older sister. Um, and everything was kind of rosy and okay. Um, my earliest memories are, you know, uh, the, the summers of the late 70s being endlessly hot and mm. to quote another song lyric, Sticky Black Tarmac, that's Paul Weller. Um, <laughs> and then things started to unravel a little bit w within the family unit. So I had no, I had one grandparent, the rest of them were all dead. My dad had me when he was very late. My dad, bless him, if he was alive today, would be 101. Mm. He was a pilot during the Second World War. We're of Jewish ancestry. He dropped bombs on Nazis. What's not to like about that, you know? <laughs> hero, um, hero, my hero, your hero, yeah. our he everyone's yeah. hero, those guys, you yeah. know. Young, Absolutely. you know, 17 years yeah. old, flying a plane made yeah. out of bits of string, yeah. you know, over getting shot at. So he, but like a lot of people of his generation, didn't want to talk about it. He wanted a very normal life. So I think he found Western Supermare fitted the bill. You know, nothing really happened. There's worse places to go up. Um, but unfortunately for, for me and, and the family, um, things started to unravel. We had an aunt, his sister, who, who was like a maiden aunt to me. She was like another mum. She committed suicide, went up in the woods, bottle of whiskey, tablets, dead. Um, and then in 1979, um, I was at school, still at primary school. 
one of my best friends dropped dead in front of me, just had a, an aneurysm and just phew, hit the floor, dead eyes in the back of their head. And um, I saw a dead person, you know, and, and then a few months after that, my father died and I was, I'd already been sent to a, a boarding school, which, um, not a posh school, I'd somehow managed to pass some sort of exam. Um, you know, we didn't, we weren't rich, we didn't have any money. My, my dad was born in a room above a pub and my mum was born in a two up, two down terrace house in Coventry, you know, which is why I've got a Cockney accent, obviously, <laughs> and support Liverpool. <laughs> a Cockney <laughs> it, it Cov. All, it all makes sense now, doesn't it? Cockney Cov Scouser. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, losing my dad was just, uh, it was catastrophic for me. Like, I mean, there's never a good time to lose a parent. And, and how old were you? you I was 11. 11, okay. And I'd just been sent to this boarding school and it was really brutal and not the sort of place and, and not the time, you know, in history where boys or men spoke about how they felt. I just, I, I was brought home. I went to see, I was taken to see my dad in the open coffin in the chapel arrest. There he was, dead. And the next day I was sent back to school. And I walk, remember walking into school with my bag sort of over my shoulder and one of the older kids just said, where the fuck have you been, you skiving bastard? And he gave me a clump over the back mm. of the head. And so if I had any notion that I was going to be able to talk about how I felt, yeah. that wasn't going to happen. Mm. And then um, then I was sexually abused by the headmaster for a couple of years. By the headmaster? Yeah, by the headmaster of the school. Um, who's dead now. <laughs> um and I don't really want to go into all that sort of mm. stuff. It, it it happened. It wasn't just me. You're talking Catholic schools. You know, that, that story's been told time yeah. and time again. The collusion that goes with protecting those kind of people and the way that I was targeted as this vulnerable kid looking for a father figure and, and, and predatory paedophiles zero in on that stuff. I can know. So... That wasn't great. Did you have, just, I'll be on that one. Did you have any outlet to go and tell anyone about Who? this? Who are you going to tell? Who are you going to tell? The whole, to me, the school, everything that that represented, the Catholic Church, the institutions of, of power. I mean, I'm only 11, 12 yeah. years old, remember? Yeah. They were all in it together. Yeah. And and the, what happened to me was... was if I had any respect for those institutions prior to that, it was gone mm. because I knew that they knew mm. and I knew that it was going on and I knew that it wasn't just me. But but part of the grooming process is is, is the installation of guilt and shame on the victim and that you can't tell anybody because no one will believe you and it's your fault. When, when these incidents happened, were you told you can't tell anyone? No one, it was never said. Mm. It just, it's like, who's going to, he's, the headmaster yeah. of a, he's a priest. Yeah. You're, you're told, you know, society kind of looks up to people like this in, yeah. and that's how they get away with it. Mm. I think Jimmy Savile got away with it for all them years because, because the queen gave him a bloody OBE, yeah. you know, that's so when people have elevated to those positions of mm. power and I'm just, and my behavior was off the wall. Yeah. So I'm a problem kid. Yeah. And when I was 12, the redemption of a fashion occurred. I had a, my best mate at school, Tim, his parents were really cool, kind of like we are now, Dodge, mm. you know, cool parents, mm. right? And and um, his mum and dad got us a pair of tickets and I went to see the jam mm. when I was 12. That's my first gig. Actually, that's a lie. My first gig was the Wurzels. <laughs> 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 I 
<laughs> the jazz a bit cooler, yeah, right? Yeah, but, <laughs> but that's like uh, anyway. The first gig that I was that I paid to, uh, yeah. to go and see was I went to see the Jam, and I was I was just coming up to my thirteenth birthday, and all this stuff was going on, yeah. and I went into this gig uh, at Stafford Bingley Hall, and I just felt fucking hell, thank God, yeah, I can get lost in this. This this makes sense to me, yeah. music and. You know, I've still got the chops just about. Yeah. Good bonnet, mate, you Thank got you. there, haven't yeah. it? <laughs> um, but it was just, and then a, a, an older kid, and no one knew what was going on, no. but but after my dad had died, one of the older kids, Martin Johnson, who I'm still friends with to this day, he was a few years older than me, he came into my dorm one night and he gave me his cassette, like a C90 compilation tape. And on it was with the Who and the, the Jam and the Ruts and the Specials, all this kind of like 60s and post-punk music yeah. and two-tone and I used to listen to that cassette every night, and it was it, it kept me alive. It saved my life. I've actually done a podcast a few years ago called "Music Saved My Life" because yeah. I firmly believe it did. Because without that, I, I, you know, God ain't going to help me. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? God's not going to help me. God's fucking letting this happen. Yeah. So I had I had that, and um, and with that came an identity and what to wear and what to. You know, he Paul Weller, even on the back of his album, there was a poem by Shelley. I remember going to the school library to read this poem, Arise Like Lions, and I thought, oh, my God, someone's speaking to me, yeah. you know. So I had all that. This is a very long-winded answer to how do I end up being a heroin addict, right? Mm. No, this is, this is good. This, this is, is how we get, yeah, this is how right, I got Absolutely. There. This is your story, mate. So school was just an endurance. It was like, I need to get out. I need to just survive this. They they removed that particular individual for the last couple of years that I was at that school. But it, So that individual they removed, how old were you when they removed him? I was 14. So we went back to school, I think, for the last year, the fifth year, and he was gone. And there was no fanfare, no announcement. It was all obviously swept under the carpet. And I subsequently, years later, years, years later, I found out that they'd farmed him off to this parish in Ireland where he eventually was convicted of a serious sexual assault Good. against a 14-year-old boy. Good. And he was defrocked. What was his uh, name? Uh, I ain't going to say. Why not? Because he's dead. Well, so it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter. Okay. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because you can go and Google it and there's nothing there. Mm. Trust me. Yeah, you've done the lot. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's not there. Yeah, okay. So it doesn't matter. I'll tell you afterwards if you want to go and Google it. Yeah, George, no, but I'm not it does, that bothered. I just want, I was just want to, but some things like this, thing. I want to bring people out. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I know he's so, Grand Britain. So, he, so he's dead and he, he did his yeah. time and, and from all accounts, and I trust me, you know, I, I've mixed in certain circles mm. where I, I made some inquiries about his time in jail Yeah, and he got what he deserved. Yeah, I bet. So when, when this happened, what did it trigger to you, trigger for you personally inside? There's going to be a lot of hatred towards... Men was it? Or hatred was it, towards me. Hatred towards yourself was it? Shame, shame. Okay. Guilt and shame. What what it did is it destroyed any trust that I had with other people to develop trust with with someone. I, my dad was dead. That was that decimated me. Yeah. And then this fella steps in, and that all happens, yeah. right? So to build relationships, healthy relationships, became really difficult because I didn't trust anybody. I didn't know that was how I was. It just how how I was. I'm yeah. I'm a young kid. Remember, yeah, this right. is all twelve year old. Yeah, yeah, this is all said with you know the years of hindsight and a lot of work and you know. Da, da, da. Do you, do you reckon that trauma that happened when you were twelve was the sort of catalyst of why you became and got into drugs heavily? So you'd think the answer would be yes, wouldn't you? You think I'd say that's right? I don't think that is the case. Okay. I don't think it helped. So so what happened? was you know, as my taste in music sort of expanded and um, 
I started to listen to music that was, you know, made by people that used a lot of drugs. So, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and, and all these bands that I adored had clearly taken a lot of drugs. So I, I built that equation, the sex, drugs and rock yeah. and roll. And being in a boys' boarding school, the sex were quite difficult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you were the headmaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the drugs and the rock and roll. So yeah. the first time I had a spliff and then listened to Quadrophenia, which is my yeah. favourite album by yeah. The Who. Quality. Um, it was just like, what oh, fucking hell. Yeah. Wow. That's what it's supposed to sound like. And I'm not advocating that, kids. Yeah. I'm not going to looking at the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <Yes>. yeah. listen, <laughs> listen, listen, children, don't try this at home. But look, it, it changed things. Yeah. And, and my inability to, to just be in me mm-hmm. and, and be okay with me was was kind of smoothed a little bit with with alcohol and, and weed. And, and then it just became alcohol, weed, fags. And fetamines, and and you know, I've I've seen some of the podcasts that you've done here with, with a couple of fellas that are in recovery, yeah. and my journey wasn't really much different from there. It's yeah. fairly well trodden. Yeah. You, for an addict, mm. you just keep going until mm. you're trying to find this combination of things, yeah. substances, people, girls, boys, whatever it might yeah. be. You're just juggling this equation to try and make yourself feel okay. I don't think. You're getting high, you, you know, like normal people seem to have, they have a different relationship with substances. With me, I'm just trying to make myself feel okay. Yeah. You know, and suppress all this stuff, the anger and the hurt and the loss and the guilt and the shame and the shoulda, woulda, coulda. And, you know, I'm not a stupid individual, but but formal education was done. It was over. And, and I rumbled through, a, you know, I went and I failed all my exams I left home at 16 in Western Superman. I ran away to London. And uh, I remember I got off the train. I'd done a, a rap of speed. I'd had a couple of cans of Stella. Ch- furiously chain smoking. I'm only like 16 and yeah. a half, right? Yeah. Yeah. 17 yeah. maybe. And I stood on the corner of Fifth Street and Shaftesbury Avenue, which for people don't know. is mm. kind of centre of Soho. Yeah. This was 1986. It's a very different place back then. Yeah. Prostitutes, drug dealers, alcoholics, sex shops. Yeah. I thought, fucking brilliant. <laughs> in my element. Yeah. yeah no, seriously. Yeah. yeah. I was just like, I've arrived. Yeah. This is a bit of me. This, yeah. this, I can get this. Yeah. The kind of sleazy undercurrent, yeah. the underbelly. You know, the, like, and I remember saying this, like, thinking to myself, there was more, more is going to happen in the next five minutes on this street mm. than five in the years. next 50 yeah. years in yeah. Western yeah. Supermare. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I stayed, mm. I, I found a way and I, I did some hostels and, and I was in a kind of place for runaway people and, you know, just on the hustle really from quite an early age. Um, and, and in the following year, something else that changed my life was I went to Glastonbury for the first time in, in 86. And that was welcome to the counterculture, yeah. welcome to another place where None of those rules do what you want apply. You want. Yeah, 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 and and you know the the whole kind of that shall not Catholicism, religious, Christian, whatever you want to call it, yeah. thing to me was a non-starter. That was done, and then here was this world where people would say, "Hey, man," mm. <laughs> you know, and and I I just fell in love with mm. with that part of life. It had everything that I wanted: music and drugs, and I took acid for the first time and. Um, you know, I remember watching The Cure and um, 
standing next to someone they're going you're all right kid because i was still only yeah. like 17, 17 like, you yeah, know yeah. only a couple of years older than my daughter is yeah. now and i just remember turning this guy and went i've never been better yeah absolutely off my cake yeah. on acid which was a, you know watching the cure on acid is is quite an experience yeah. i gotta say it you know the music's a bit boring but once yeah. you've done some acid yeah. it was like it everything's was a, good it was fantastic yeah. you know i ain't gonna lie it was fantastic but here's the thing with with people like me so the rest of my mates that were there, and we all took acid at the same time. And like the next day, when we were sat around the campfire and they were going, oh, we should do that again sometime. I'm like, yeah, now. Yeah. Let's do it again now. Yeah. And they were like, we haven't even finished this last trip and yeah. you want to go again. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, because that's fucking where it's at for me. Yeah. So that's a red flag, but clearly I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't paying any attention yeah. and no one else was either. So what was your journey after that then? You're coming up into your 17s, 18s, you found drugs, you found music, you found the love of that London lifestyle. What was your route from there to earn money? So I didn't have any idea what I wanted to be. I still don't, to be honest mm. with you. <laughs> and how old are you today? Old enough to know better. Mm. 55 in August, I will be. We had so, this conversation, so you're 54. Yes, I'm 54. But I keep telling Waste people. Waste it away. So six months before a birthday. I just Give them the start, heads up. I start kind of, oh, I'm going to be 55. So. Anyway, so what happened was I, was I was back in London and I was just doing loads of jobs. And um, I was working in a hotel behind a bar and I wasn't even 18. I'm, it was the 80s. You mm, could just get a job, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. and at the end of the month, uh, the bar manager says, look, we're going to have to let you go. You've drunk more than you've sold. Mm. And they gave me a month's money and I walked past a travel agent and it was just as Virgin Atlantic had first started flying to America. So it was 99 quid, one way, standby ticket to New York. <laughs> so I thought, fuck it. <laughs> What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. And I got a one-way ticket to New York and um, I ended up in Los Angeles. I'd, I ran out of money really quickly in, in, on the East Coast and it was October, it was getting cold. Mm. And I just had enough, I scraped enough money together to buy a one-way ticket to LA, thinking well, if I'm going to be starving hungry, I might as well be warm. Yeah. And I ended up in LA and I was there on and off for a couple of years. I, I found this expat British community that really looked after me. There was loads of lads that had been at the World Cup in Mexico in 86. Yeah. So there was loads of Geordies and Scousers and Manx that had, you know, they were fleeing Thatcher's Britain. They were yeah. out, the, the, the industry had been destroyed. They'd taken their redundancy. They'd gone to Mexico. They probably smuggled a shitload of drugs <laughs> back up to America, and they were—they it was like off Weedazane pet, yeah. but in California. Yeah. <laughs> so I was working with these lads, and um, you know, eighteen years old still. Yeah. Not, and they were all older than me. I couldn't even drink in in the English bars. Was it twenty-one out there? Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. But you could get drugs, yeah. and, and I ended up living in this flat in Venice Beach, which back then at night time was fucking dangerous. You yeah. know. But me being me, I'm smoking crack with gang, you know, black kids. Yeah. Because to them, I'm not like the enemy. Yeah. I'm not like white America. I'm like this crazy, they used to call me the crazy limey. And they made me this honorary member of the Venice Shoreline Crips. And it was like really exciting. And then you see someone just get their head shot off, mm. you know, and you're just like, fuck, this isn't a game, is it? These kids, you know, it, it's like serious. But I'm from Western Supermare and I'm a slightly out of place. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but... But yeah, I, I picked up the crack there and... Um, what did you go before you got to the crack? How did that journey go? You were saying earlier, like from the drinking to the fag, to the weed, to the speed. To, what was after speed? Obviously the acid 
Yeah. And then what? Did it go cocaine? And then then, then cocaine. Yeah. So so I was I got a job working on film set. So this will probably get me banned from America forever. But if you're watching, whoever's in charge when I next want to go, <laughs> it's all in the past, right? <laughs> um, I, I had a false green card, so you could buy. This is, again, it's the eighties. Yeah. Things were really different. Mm. You know, this is obviously pre nine eleven, and I got a false green card. And I ended up getting a job working as a TV and film extra. So I was on like fame and uh, I did this um, TV show called China Beach where mm. we were dressed up as GIs with mm. M16s with black. It was fucking brilliant. <laughs> Stone at me all the time. Quality. Just, <laughs> you know, and um, and winging it really. Yeah. And I'm on a set one day and I'm talking to this old American. I say old, he's probably younger than I am yeah. now, but he seemed old at the time because I'm still yeah. like 18 yeah. years old. And he's like, hey, you like to get high? I'm like, fuck yeah. I'm... <laughs> And he pulls out this bag of coke and he's like, you want to do a line? And I'd, I'd not done cocaine at that point. And I was like, yeah, whatever, you know, fucking. So he's my, my new best mate, you know. And uh, when you're an extra on a film set, they, they, you spend a lot of time sitting around waiting. Mm. You don't do much, mm. you know, you just wait and then you do your walk. And what they don't like people do is just talking all the time. But when you just <laughs> fucking line a coke the size of a snake, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Me and this guy who's like my new best mate, and and he's like, oh, so you know, listen, if you need to, you want to shift some of this stuff for me, you know, to your English chum. So all of a sudden, I'm like the guy selling the coke in the English pub in Santa Monica. Yeah, nineteen years. How did that happen? I yeah. didn't. wasn't my plan, but it's what happened. And um, and then one day I I didn't have any, and uh, it was a Friday night, and I and bizarrely enough, I knew that the manager of the apartment building that I lived in, he he'd serve up a little bit every now and again. So I went to see him, and he went, oh, I don't have any powder, but I got a, I got some rock. Now, I'd been living in Venice Beach on and off for for a year at this point, and I'd seen the crack epidemic at first hand. Yeah, you'd seen people walking around like fucking something from the, the Walking Dead, ghosts, you know, yeah. just ghosts. Yeah, yeah. It's not a good look. There's, no. there's nothing about it. But of course, with the impetuosity and the stupidity of you, it's not going to happen to you, is it? You know, it's like Zamo and Grey and Jill. It's not. It's not going to happen <laughs> to you. So the, my, the, the the manager of my apartment building like gave me my first hit of crack, and um, obviously I didn't leave his apartment all night. We just stayed there, just on the pipe. And and the next morning, I, I remember thinking to myself I need to fucking stay away from that stuff because that's a bit Moorish that right. yeah that's gonna so even then you know there's no happy ending right, with okay. this I mean what I'm... is the what is the difference between a line of cocaine and smoking crack about a thousand pound a day yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, what, but the hit what is the is it, what's the what's the feeling like well, am I talking to, so I'm assuming that, that people watching this have got no idea. No, right? so no, anyone listening to this who ain't got an idea of what it's like taking a line of cocaine versus smoking crack. Well, taking a line of cocaine is, is like watching Liverpool last year and smoking crack is like watching them three years ago when they won the league. Right, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and does, it last, does crack last longer? Is it... Is, Crack more addictive. No, it's it's an instant thing. It's, it's an like, instant. Okay. So people sort of say it's a bit like if you're looking at a skyscraper and and you with crack you get in the lift and you're on the top floor within seconds. Right. Whereas sniffing coke all night is a bit like having a casual walk up the stairs. Right. You know. Anyway, it's it clearly 
it was destroying and continues to destroy communities everywhere. And, and back then it was, you know, it was fueling the violence of the gang wars in America and, yeah. and, and that still go on to this day, obviously. But but then it was an epidemic and, and I just walked straight into it. And, you know, I'd be out at three o'clock in the morning in parts of town that, you know, 19 year old white boys from Western Supermare had no place being because I'm driven by the need to score. And, and obviously that doesn't end well. That I managed to leave America. I, mean, I sold the car that I had. Um, I smoked my last hit of crack on the toilet on the plane, flying back. And get this, the plane that I flew back on, Dodge, right, was called the uh, Atlantic Clipper. It then flew on to Germany, turned around, came back and was blown up over Lockerbie. Was that right? It was on that plane, yeah. Yeah, okay, no. yeah so anyway. And and I, I go back to Western Supermare. So I've been in Hollywood, LA, yeah. Venice Beach for a couple of years, thinking, I don't know what I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> thinking my life was going to be this big, huge sort of, like a film. Yeah. And then I wake up one morning and I'm back at my, my poor old mum's house in Western Supermare. I'm like, what the fuck's happened? How did that happen? You know, it was December 1988. And how old were you roughly there? 20. 20, okay. And... Uh, I'm I'm on the biggest come down like ever because yeah. I've been like piping for months and months and months and months, and I go and see the the doctor. The, the, I say the family doctor, like, yeah. not my own doctor, but the doctor that we're registered with. And, yeah. and I told him sort of what I'd been doing, and he, he sort of he leant across the table and went, "Simon, I suggest you get a job and stop taking drugs and and maybe drink a little bit less." And I was just like, "Well, you're no fucking use, <laughs> are you? I mean, how's that going to help?" <laughs> Because because it's 1989, yeah. and and of course I've now walked into the beginning of rave culture yeah. and ecstasy, and not taking drugs is like the last thing that I'm going to yeah. do in it. Yeah. I'm going to get in, involved with that, so I get involved with that. I don't stay in Western that long. I'm back in London, and um, yeah, you know, I, I walk into that, and and I've got to say, you know, I walk into good times, mate. Rave scene, they're the best times. We're having ever, good right? times. We're having good late times. 80s. Late 80s, early Amazing. 90s, before it started to get dark, yeah. you know, before your Dave Courtney's get yeah. involved. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dave. <laughs> before the villains, cut, before people see it as, as Earning a, a lot an of earner. Yeah. And, and it was more like, you know, where are you from? Oh, great, man. Nice shoes. Nice, yeah. you know, just in a field. Yeah. Having a good time. Mm. But, you know, if you, if you care to sort of look at the sort of flow chart of, of youth culture and drug culture, you know, what goes up must come down. Yeah. So, you know, in the 60s, everyone's doing loads of Purple Hearts and yeah. Blues and Speed, and they go up, and then towards the end of the 60s, it all gets a bit psychedelic. And yeah. then there's the first wave of opiate addiction and, and people doing heavier downers, and we end up getting fucking prog rock, so make that what you will, you know, mm. awful 25-minute guitar solos and all that dreadful stuff. And then punk comes along and everyone's doing speed again and, and we get like the Sex Pistols and the Clash and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then that, you know, that comes down and, and then there's this kind of second wave in the in the late 70s and early 80s of heroin addiction and you've got the fall of the Shah of Iran and there's countries awash with gear and, you know, these things happen. Yeah. That are, and then the same thing kind of happens again in the early 90s is that, you know, we're all up, out, staying awake for days and do the do and then... You know, I remember someone just put some heroin in front of me on a bit of foil, and I was like, "Yeah, whatever." Do you know what I mean? Whatever. And and, and what you're going to ask me is, "What's that like?" I'm assuming that's mm. what you're going to ask me. Mm. <laughs> sort of I want to know what heroin 
looks like and how you take it. I know it's brown and yeah. it's on a foil, but what are you, what, are you, what actually are you doing there? You're smoking it, so it it, it kind of like forms a, a sort of it looks like lava. Okay. It sort of becomes... So you're burning underneath. I've seen people do it before. Yeah. They're burning it under, yeah, on the yeah. streets. Yeah, it heats up and then you inhale the fumes. Okay. So it burns out some, whatever impurities are left in it. I mean, that's one way of smoking. And that particular kind of heroin, so prior to that, heroin wasn't smokable. It was only sort of because of, you know, the fall of Iran and this Iranian, Afghanistani kind of heroin. Prior to that, it all came from the Far East and it was white heroin and you, you can't smoke that. You can inject it, really. Don't do that, kids. Like I'm pointing the mic. <laughs> pointing the mic. Don't again. do that either. Um, so, how old were you when you first took your heroin? First took heroin. Twenty. Twenty. Bloody 20. hell. And I thought I was having a midlife crisis at twenty. Yeah. You know, because I, I thought my life was going to be. I was going to be in America. And I was going to do this, and I was going to. You know, I mean, I'm just mad. I'm just mm. really quite delusional young man. You know, taking loads of drugs. Um, I'd formed my first band and, and we were going to, obviously, it was the best band in the world because if you don't think you're in the best band yeah. in the world, you're in the wrong band. Yeah. Um, and that didn't work out because... What does heroin make you feel like? When you take it, is it an instant hit? And what is, what, what is that feeling? Oh, when you smoke it. So the way I've described it to people in the past is, is, is like, well, it makes everything okay. So whatever's going on in your life... Like, I could smoke some smack now and I'd be able to say, you know what, this season's going really well for Liverpool... Yeah. <laughs> fucking great we're going to win the league we're going to win the league we're going to win the Champions League we're going to get readmitted into because you just don't you know what I mean it's yeah. like fucking complete delusional you know medically it's been used for, for centuries yeah. it's the strongest painkiller known to man yeah. you know as over the history of it being sort of synthesised from the opium poppy you know to um, morphine in, in the late 1800s to heroin which actually comes from a German word Hirosh, I think is how you pronounce it, which is called heroic. Yeah. Makes you feel heroic. Right. Untouchable. Fucking hell. Like nothing matters. You cannot fucking touch me. I am God. Yeah. And that's, you know, and then you start injecting it and you fucking take that a little bit further. And then if you're someone like me, you start adding cocaine to your injection. So you're hitting up speedballs of cocaine and smack then. Were yeah. you in, were you injecting? I started heroin? to inject, yeah, at that time. And yeah. then you were mixing cocaine with heroin and injecting yeah. it. Yeah. Fucking hell. Yeah. And what's that feeling like going from injecting <laughs> heroin, from smoking heroin to injecting heroin? What's the difference, feeling wise? Just quicker. Man, it, it's it's hard to sort of describe it without saying like I'm eulogising it, but you don't do it because it makes you feel bad. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm. If if there's, I'm going to sort of switch this a little bit. Yeah. So, when I have one child, right? She was born in 2008, and I was four years clean at that point. And um, they pulled her out of her mum's belly. She was born by C-section, and they put her in my arms. And I looked at her and I said, "Tabitha, I love you." I don't even want to say it right mm. now. And and um, so that's the only thing. It's ever come close to how I felt on heroin. Right. And the mixture... And if you're a parent and you've had that experience... Yeah, of course, nothing beats then, it. Then you know yeah, what I'm okay. talking about. Now, it's a different thing, but it's that level of emotion. Yeah. Just kind of, you know... I would do anything for that baby. I will do anything to protect this child. I'll stop a fucking bullet for yeah. this child. It is my own flesh and blood. Yeah. And um, and I've you know, been part of bringing this thing into the world... Mm. And and I felt the same way about heroin. Mm. So 
Mixing heroin and cocaine, injecting, yeah. what's that feeling like? Well, it depends what your percentages are. You know? So what so, would you do? So I'm, 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 I'm just intrigued by this completely. What, what, percentages, what percentage would you throw in? So me... 50-50? Me, I, I'm a 50-50 kind of guy. I like the rush of the, of the coke and then the, the smack sort of catches it up and it just sort of calms you down a little bit. I've got friends, most of them are dead, not surprisingly, who kind of were like liked the sort of <laughs> all yeah. tight, you know. It's like going up a fucking roller yeah. coaster. Yeah. And then you have that sort of rush that, that just floods your whole body. And you're just, you know, you're omnipotent, you know, you're just untouchable. And that lasts for, you know, there's a few variables in this, the quality of the drugs yeah. and, and your tolerance and, and you build up a tolerance and it's obviously not sustainable and it's really fucking dangerous. Yeah. How much were you spending on drugs a day at your peak? So I, this is my American visa going right out the window, isn't it? So I... <laughs> <laughs> I sold drugs. Yeah. So that's what I did in the 90s. I was known as the cat in the hat and I was at festivals and I was in the music scene. I kind of thought that I was a musician. I was always going to get a band together. and But basically I was a drug addict that supported his habit by, by selling pills. And Now listen, you know, Pablo Escobar, I was not. Yeah. You know, I wasn't shipping in tons of gear from here, there or anywhere. Yeah. I was reasonably well connected and I could always get my hands on a parcel of this, that, or the other, and if I was going to a festival. But this is this is like me as a drug addict, right? Yeah. So I went to Glastonbury, I think it was 94. Mm. I took 10 ounces of Coke, um, 1,000 E's, 500 hits of acid, a couple of ounces of weed, a couple of ounces of hash, a few other bits and pieces, my own stash of heroin, da da da. And I went with my business partner, who's, you know, it wasn't an addict, took drugs, but not an addict, not like me. And he came home from that weekend with 10 grand profit. I came back owing someone 500 quid. Mm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's an addict with mm. a load of drugs. An addict who doesn't like himself, who would give people drugs. I once fronted Primal Scream like 100 E's. Like, you're going to get any money back from them? They're fucking Scottish drug addicts. Mm. Do you know what I mean? They're yeah. not going <laughs> to fucking give you your 100 pills back, are they? <laughs> But, you know, I was so desperate to be liked and to be wanted and fit in. that You know, I was a, I was a great low-level drug dealer because I was always there. Yeah. If you went to a festival or a gig any time between 1990 and 96 and you went, where's the cat in the hat? I'd be lurking about somewhere, which is how I met the next question you're going to ask mm. me. So, who? Um, yeah, who so, are you serving drugs to? Well, everyone at that time, but but but... I think it was the end of 93, I get a phone call at home from the promoter of this little club in King's Cross in London, Water Rats. He says, look, I've got this band here. It's the first gig in London. They're driving me a bad for a bit of coke. And I'm like, you know, if I had a pound for every time, he was like, they're the next big thing, mate. They're going to be huge. I'm like, yeah, of course they are. It's fucking Tuesday. I'm like, Whatever night it was. I was at home doing heroin, watching fucking Brookside, you know what I mean? <laughs> Not asked. <laughs> I'd go out and some band from Manchester... He ring on me. He's pleased. Tom, do me a favour. Do it. So anyway, I go down and it's it's Oasis mm. and they're playing at the Water Rats and I stand there and maybe it was the fact that I'd just whacked up a lot of heroin. Maybe it's the fact that they were at that point just the most incredible thing yeah. that I'd seen. And I remember thinking, well, this is this is clearly my Beatles and Rolling Stones. Mm. You know, all the other bands that I'd fallen in love with are either from back in the day and past their best or I mean the jam had obviously split up a decade you know but I just remember thinking 
this is it. This is going to, you know, being up close 15, 20 feet from a young Liam Gallagher in a club with 200 people in it, listening and watching Oasis basically play their first album, which is my favourite album yeah. to this day by yeah. them. Yeah. And just being completely blown away. And, and we hooked up afterwards and I was kind of in their orbit right up until Nebworth, when they played Nebworth. And what year was Nebworth? 96. 96. That was their biggest gig, wasn't it? That was, yeah. 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 And, and I like, left Nebworth before they played because my heroin habit was so out of control that I w I'd scrape myself onto the guest list and um, I like, like scrape myself because the word gets out, oh, him, he's on smack. Right? Yeah. Now, the, the hypocrisy, if you want to call it mm. that, of the music industry is mm. you can walk around chatting absolute bollocks coked off your tits with coke falling out your nose yeah. and everyone's like fucking the geezer yeah the minute people talk about heroin pfft. yeah unless of course you're making the money so if you're the happy mondays it's like all right sean you know and i, I totally respect sean Ryder for sorting this shit out you know what i mean yeah. but so if you're making people money then people keep their mouth shut if you're like some two bob fucking drug dealer like me then you become persona non grata yeah quite quickly because there's a line of other people queuing up to take mm. your job mm. and um so nebworth to me was for oasis i guess it was their sort of high watermark really yeah. you know it was this huge thing they did and, and and i'd got there hours before they went on and i'm in a portaloo backstage smoking crack and um to sort of take the edge off that and, and my, my heroin habit is is vicious at this point I and mean, i don't think there's any other kind of heroin habit actually but um and I and I think, well, I'm going to just have a hit and then I'll go and mooch about backstage and, you know, whatever. And I'm like that. I'm trying to find this little bag of gear that I've got and it's gone. Yeah. And, um, you know, those moments in life where you just go, oh, fuck. <laughs> like you've left your kick car keys or mm. you, you just remember, oh, you've left. Right. So I've just gone. I've left it in London. I've left this heroin in London. You can't walk around backstage going, anyone got any smack? Yeah. It's not yeah. It's not done. It's not a done thing. Yeah. And uh, a couple of people that I knew were similarly afflicted to me. When I found them, they're like, no, we ain't got anything either. So that's it. I'm going home. Simple. So you left before the gig started? Yeah, yeah. Just to go and get yeah, another yeah, yeah. Fucking hell. And, I, you know, this might sound a bit like, you know, a sort of a fairly sort of theatrical metaphor for the thing. But, but of course, everyone else is arriving. This is like four or five in the afternoon. So there's like 150,000 people all coming this way and I'm going that way. Mm. <laughs> and I had my passes and all that. I remember stopped some kid and went, here, I'll have that going out with them cunts backstage. Mm. So if you're watching this, that's me, you've got to think, <laughs> by the way, whoever you were. <laughs> um, and I go back to my dealers in, in Kentish Town and I'm and I just remember sort of score, you know, getting my gear and having a hit and and waking up at whatever time it was and watching the news headlines, Oasis making history. And um, bizarrely, Liam gave me a shout out from the stage and he dedicated one of the slices for the Cat in the Hat. Did he? And there I was, fucking slumped in the back seat. Back in London. Back in London. Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. And then I'm just aware of the time because I want to get into the important mm. stuff really. So that was 1996. The next 10 years, seven residential rehabs, 14 inpatient detoxes, untold locking myself in the flat, I'm gonna rattle it off, I'm not using again. Couple of trips halfway around the world to come off to get clean. 
getting nicked, homelessness, people dying, watching people getting slashed across the face because they owed a crack dealer of five quid, people getting shot. I don't know how many people died, acquaintances. Um, occasionally getting clean and staying clean for a period of time, or clean-ish, not completely clean. Not, not accepting that for me, um, clean's going to have to mean everything. Mm. It's not going to be just the heroin, or it's going to have to be everything. Really being resistant to that idea, um, in amongst all all that madness, I, I got married. <laughs> I put my first wife through a you know a lot. Um, I watched people die. You know, I, I it's just grim. You know, ten years of just fucking hell with the occasional bit of respite. You know, I think I thought that getting married would save me. I think my wife probably thought that she could, lots of people thought they could save me, yeah. but the only person that can save yourself. an addict is yeah. yourself. Yeah. And um, it took me a long time and it caused a lot of harm to a lot of people. My poor mum, bless her. I mean, we're not, we don't speak very often, you know, and, and I had no idea what that must have felt like until I became a parent myself. Yeah. But. You know, she spent 10 years waiting for a phone call saying your son's dead, you know. Um, and I was a menace. I wasn't I wasn't a gangster. I wasn't out on the pavement fucking tucking people up for mm. money. I was like robbing bacon out of Sainsbury's. Yeah. You know, it like, got to that level, did it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, begging. Yeah. On the street. I remember sitting outside a kebab shop at the end of my road. So I was living in, in Stoke Newington in Hackney. Winter. Freezing cold. Got no gas, no electric, no furniture in this flat. My wife, then wife, she'd left months ago. It was just me in this empty flat. And um, I'm sat there and, and I see this fella come out of the kebab shop with like parcels. He's obviously bought a huge meal for his family and he's walking towards his car and I, I get up off the floor where I'm begging and I open his car door. And he's like, he gave me a fiver. I remember thinking, it was just poor Christmas. I remember thinking that's the best Christmas present I've ever had. Mm. I mean, how sad's that? Because yeah. a yeah. fiver's halfway to 10 pounds and yeah. 10 pounds a bag of gear. Yeah. Right, I genuinely felt fucking amazing. Thank you. Mm. That's that's why I went. And um, you know, people asked me, was there one thing that, that eventually led me to getting clean? And there wasn't one thing. It, it was just eventually. I mean, there's only so many times you can look at yourself in the mirror whilst you're trying to get a vein in your neck with a syringe, and go, "This is a good look," because that's you know, yeah. you know. So. What happened in 2006 was um, my sister tracked me down and, and she had four children. She still has four children. And the oldest one was coming up to his 10th birthday. And I'd had bits of interaction with them in, in the brief period where I'd sort of been clean for a little while. And she put him on the phone and he said, Uncle Simon, I'm going to be 10 in a few weeks and you need to take me ice skating before you die. Right Now, this is a kid growing up in a little village in Western Supermare, 10 years old, no understanding of addiction or drugs, and saying to his uncle, can you take me ice skating before you die? Now, I imagine my sister had, had given him the script for yeah. that phone call. Yeah. And uh, then she got on the phone and she said, so you've got two weeks to, to get yourself down here and you need to be clean off everything. No methadone, nothing, completely, completely clean. And if you can't do that, then that's it. We're gonna to have to just walk away, you know, me and the kids and I was another family. I don't have a very big family, yeah. they're kind of all I've got. Yeah. 
and I don't know, you know, I'd, I'd had, like I said, all, all those periods in treatment mm. and I had counselling and I had this and that and I'd been exposed to all kinds of theories around what recovery could be or what addiction was or wasn't. And um, she, something happened, I don't know, I don't know. It, it was kind of like a fucking exocet, a truth that, and I, and I so I rung my ex-wife, my then ex, well, she wasn't my ex-wife then. <laughs> I rang my wife and I said, look, can I come and sleep on the floor? Can I come and get clean? And she said, oh, yeah, you know, your sister's been on the phone. So, yes, you can stay here for two weeks, but if you use, you've gone, if you nick anything, I'll call the police and I'll tell them about the other stuff that you've nicked off me. So you've got this opportunity. And I, and I, you know, I didn't have anywhere to live. And, and I went over to where she was living and um, I got clean. Wow. I got clean. 2006. Up. 2006. I, I remember the day she'd gone to work. It was the first day. So I arrived off my face. Do you know what I mean? And and, and she says, well, so tomorrow that's it. You're going to go to a, an NA meeting. Because I'd been doing some of them in the past. She goes, oh, that's that's the rules, basically. If you're staying, you've got to go to meetings. And um, that morning I woke up and I just thought, oh, do you know what? I'm just going to throw myself off the fucking window ledge. I'd rather die. I'd rather die, I think. I'm just going to... So I sat on this window ledge and I looked down. I was only three floors up and, and I'm, I'm a coward and I'm quite vain, <laughs> which are what people might call defects of character, but they yeah. saved me because my vanity went, well, if I don't fucking die, I'm going to be a wheelchair for the rest <laughs> of my life. <laughs> and that's not a good look, yeah. right? Yeah. So I I, um, I rung someone in recovery and said, look, where's, where's the nearest meeting? And um, they told me. And uh, it took me, and I, and I always talk about this because it's really important for people that might need to hear this. Mm. It took me a couple of hours to, to shuffle to this meeting. I was like eight stone ringing wet dodge. I was covered in abscesses. You know, I was yellow, a jaundice. I hadn't had a shower for fucking months. And I got to this meeting and without breaking people's anonymity and trying to stay within the traditions mm. of 12-step fellowship, yeah. what I experienced was a lot of people going, we fucking love you. Yeah and we can help and what happened to me was i just went you know what i don't know what to do and can you lot help me wow and tell me what to do and i'll do it i'll do everything yeah. that's it yeah. no more on my terms yeah. no more picking and choosing how i'm going to do mm. this I, I surrender and i fucking can't do this on my own and um I remember this fellow, and we're mates to this day. He said, it's nice to see you. And no one had said that to me for fucking years because it wasn't. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't nice to see me. And and that's what happened. And uh, no rehab, no detox, cold turkey. What is what is cold turkey feeling like? <laughs> it's the opposite. See the it opposite of cranking up a screen. Cranking up, yeah. It's what it feels like. Well, you see it on the TV and stuff, <laughs> and it just horrible. looks it's fucking horrible. horrible. Yeah. Physically, it's pretty grim. Physically, it's unpleasant. Yeah. Really unpleasant. For me, once I've done hundreds of them at that point, so you, you kind of know physically. It's like you're recovering from an injury. Mm. There's a timeline to mm. it, right? You, mm. you know, you, you're a sportsman. Mm. You know, you do your hamstring. Mm. You know, you'll be well, okay. This is the timeline for recovery yeah. from this, and you, you can do this, and then that'll happen, and then da da da. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we've we've withdrawn from heroin, drugs, alcohol, all of them. You know, they all have their own sort of physical timeline. But I think the thing that was and is most difficult is the mental anguish, this despair, this sense of loneliness and, and depression that seems so 
persuasive and, and, and like it's never going to end. This complete fucking despair uh, and this massive disconnect from everybody and everything. It's just you. It's kind of like I've tried to write about it in the past and it's really hard to describe. It's just loneliness yeah. on an industrial scale of it's like being in a black void, cold, and you can't touch or feel anything and it's never going to fucking stop. And And the addict voice is going, why are you even bothering? Because you know you're going to use again because that's what you do because you're a piece of shit. Because yeah. that's what you always do. You know, yeah. it just gets louder and louder and louder as the rituals go on. And and that's the that's the battle. Now, in my case, this time, I just sat in recovery meetings, breakfast, lunch, dinner, breakfast, every day for months. That's all I did. I had nowhere to live, no job, no money. Those people looked after me and they said, you never have to use again. And their voice and that collective voice was louder than the voice going, yeah, but you're going to. Yeah. And, and that's essentially what happened. And you went straight into NA. Yeah. Did you go into CA, DA, anything else? Just straight no, into just NA. That, that one will that do one me. Do you. It talks about the disease of addiction. Addiction, yeah. And so, what is the 12-step program? For any listeners out there who are struggling... What is the 12-step program? Do you know what? Everyone has their own experience of it. So yeah. I, I feel the need to say this because I don't believe in God, yeah. right? I'm, I'm an atheist, yeah. bizarrely. An atheist in a 12-step program yeah. where the word God is, is common. Yeah. And, and I've seen some of your guests and they've converted to, to they found yeah. their own. So for me, that was like, well, hang on, how's this going to work, right? So how it's worked for me is, is, is my understanding of a higher power is the collective wisdom of other people. Yeah. Right? I need to tap into their experience i need their support i need their love you're a rugby player right mm. you can't have a scrum with one person mm. Mm. <laughs> you need everyone needs to do, do their own to do their job right mm. front row locks yep. whatever if everyone yep. does their job do it. so that's how i see recovery right i'm in this kind of scrum and i need people to do to do their thing and i need to be part of that team that's for me so you know it, it really boiled down what it comes down to is this is, is kind of admit the game's up Right, just that's it, it's done, it's finished, right? You cannot, there are no circumstances that are going to present themselves at any point in your life where you'll be able to use successfully, right? That's that's the thing. Now, find your own evidence to support that. So look at your relationship with drugs and alcohol. Not someone else's, yours. What does that tell you? Mine tells me that I start here and within days, weeks, whatever, I'm fucking sat outside the kebab shop again. Yeah. Yeah. Thanking someone for giving me a fiver. Yeah. That's what happens to me yeah. every fucking time. Then there's this kind of process of accepting that perhaps this thing that you're part of um, might restore you to some kind of rational behaviour and thinking. It doesn't say it will. It says it, it might as a process of time. There's a commitment to getting involved with that. Then there's a bit of serious looking at self, yeah. your part, your gear, not someone else's stuff and maybe throwing out a few long-term resentments. So the fellow that abused me, he had to go. Yeah. I had to find forgiveness. Wow. Right? I had to find forgiveness. Otherwise, he's living in my yeah, head yeah, the rest yeah, yeah. of my life, yeah. rent-free. Yeah. What's the? F that's not going to do me any favours. He's got to go. Yeah. All those people, they've got to go. Bomb, gone, gone, yeah. gone, gone, gone. My part in that. How do I do that? What buttons are these people pressing? What's the opposite of that sort of stuff? How can my behaviour reflect my new way of life and 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 why does that person annoy me because you can see it oh because they remind me of me don't be him yeah 
right? To the, yeah. All that sort of stuff. Don't be the guy preying on the newcomers. Don't, you know, just keep your side of the street clean. Find some kind of meditative practice, whatever it is for me. It's listening to the fucking Rolling Stones, walking my dog on the beach in Margate. Yeah. Really loud. That'll do me in the yeah. morning. You know, that, that channels me, gets my feet on the ground. And then fucking help other people. Yeah. Help other people. I hope this helped has helped someone. I hope there's someone out there. I said to you when we spoke yeah. on the phone, yeah. we might save someone's well, life. Yeah, we'll never meet them. Yeah. And that doesn't matter. Yeah. I think, I think what you're saying here, mate, is going to save a lot of people's lives. One person gets yeah. a bit of hope, right? Yeah. Job done for yeah. today. And, and I don't do it perfectly, but I try. I try it with my music. I try it with my writing um, to show people that beyond the, the absolute daily hell of addiction. I mean, when I was sat outside that kebab shop, I thought not using drugs would be boring. I genuinely thought that. And there's nothing more boring than being a drug addict. Nothing. Yeah. It's the most boring, meaningless existence you could imagine. Do you think a lot of addicts think that, that they want to get off boozing or yeah. alcohol, but then they go, I'll be boring. I'll yeah. be boring. I hear that a lot. Yeah. 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 So my life, I don't know how long we've got. Since 2006, I became a parent. I've already spoken yeah. about that. My daughter's nearly 15. Fair play. Hold on. You know, just she's never seen respect. me drink, right? Yeah, amazing. She's never seen me drink. She won't see me drink yeah. just for the day and all that, right? I've never said to her, Tabitha, I'll see you. I'm not turned up. Yeah. I've never promised her anything and I don't have much to give her. I've got my time. Yeah. You know, I speak to her every morning when she's up in London with her mum. She comes to me on weekends. So much of what I've learned in recovery has trickled down into her. Yeah. Do you know, she's she's kind of she's a very different young person than, than me. Yeah. Thank God, yeah. you know. Um, and, and she knows that her dad is there for her, and, and you know, um, that's like the greatest gift. You know, yeah. aside from actually being clean, I'll be seventeen years yeah. clean and sober in in June. I remember when that, I, that, I just, that's a massive respect, mate. Seventeen years clean from yeah. everything that I'm hearing right now that yeah. you've gone through. Yeah, yeah, and you're saying most of your mates are not around anymore they're all dead when Tabitha was born so uh, 2008 um, we had her me and her mum had this kind of like non-religious welcome to the world ceremony there were eight people there so four of her mum's best friends and four of mine they're all dead Those all four your people. four yeah wow Carrie Luke Kev and Earl all from addiction addiction they were all clean at the time and they were all musicians or music lovers, um, really talented guitar players. I mean, I'm, I'm a fucking arsehole on the guitar. I can write songs. I'm yeah. a great songwriter. I'm going to talk about that in a minute, yeah, if, if I may. Absolutely, mate. I've seen and um, heard, mate. You're a talent. So um, so this idea that being clean would be boring is, is really common in people that are using because what they remember and what we remember is we remember the good times. We remember... Heston service station at yeah. four o'clock in the morning in 1990. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come on. Come on, let's have it. Where's the rave, yeah, yeah, right? We yeah, remember yeah. that. Good times. Yeah, yeah. Bizarrely, what we forget is in a flat in Hackney with no gas, furniture, yeah. electricity, and a fucking syringe in my neck with my pal on the floor fucking twitching because he's hit a fucking artery, blood going everywhere, and me going, oh, fucking hang on a minute. Let me, get, you know. Wow. We forget that. Remember, you know. We have a very selective. We can have a. Just going back memory. to your four best mates. There, yeah. you said they were clean yeah. when they when they passed away. No, no, they were clean when they were at Tabitha's uh, welcome they, to the okay. world thing, and they carried on using. And then they they that. relapsed. Okay, they all relapsed, and they didn't they didn't you know people 
and I was one of them, had this idea that recovery can be like this revolving door, you know, you do meetings and you sort of slap out and then, oh, you know what, I'm going to, I don't need this anymore. And look, yeah. let's be clear, it's not the only way to recover, yeah. right? Um, there isn't, if there was a one size fits all, Dodge, mm. if there was a magic bullet for addiction, the person that discovered that would be very, very rich mm. and then they'd be very, very dead because the drug cartels would assassinate yeah. them, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there isn't one. There isn't one way. I can't. I haven't got a magic wand. I can't tell people how to recover. That's what worked for me, and it works for lots of people. It doesn't work for everybody, you know. What doesn't work is is doing nothing. You have to do something yeah. differently. You have to start doing things differently. And everyone has their own process, and I don't have the monopoly on it. And I haven't done anything perfectly, mm. and I'm not a perfect human being. Mm. And if I had some of my time again, I'd do things differently. Mm. And I've upset a few people along the way. I like to think I might have helped a few people along yeah. the way. So far, so good. You know, and part of that twelve-step journey, do you have to go back and apologise for people? You have to go. Do you have to go back into your past and see all the bad thing you've done and go and apologise? Do you know what? It's it's a really misunderstood part of the process. Yeah. That so it's not really apologising because that's just a word, right? Yeah. And people, the chances are that person's heard it a million times yeah. before. Yeah. What it is is actually giving them an opportunity to tell you what it was like to be on the receiving end of oh, you. Oh wow, that's powerful. And you to hear it. Okay. Right. And then the amend is to not be able like that anymore. And some of those incidents, some of those people, a lot of people on my list were dead. Yeah. So there's nothing you can do. Yeah. And there were a couple of close personal relationships with ex-girlfriends that to have waltzed back into their life 20 years down the mm. line would have caused more harm than good. So you need a bit of guidance with that stuff. Mm. You know, you need someone with a bit of wisdom and a bit of experience. But yeah, that, that's part of that. Is and, and most of the people when I was did that first time round were like Simon, it's fine. My sister went, well, okay, I can sit down then. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, you sit comfortably. <laughs> yeah, get yourself a cup of tea. Yeah, you know. So there was a bit of that. Um, what did your sister say to you when she sat down? She said, "Do you know how scared we were? Do you know how selfish you were? Do you know the terror that that she lived?" And my sister, by the way was a copper <laughs> you, couldn't have, the you couldn't have written it well I used to say I mean I used to go well, if it wasn't people like me you'd be out of a job <laughs> and think it was funny yeah, yeah. I mean it maybe it's funny it's not that funny yeah. is it but she yeah she 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 came looking for me a few times you know drove to London and pulled me out of a crack house and you know I'm a little brother and and yeah. you know always will be you know there's only 13 months between us and we're we were actually very similar people who have had very different lives. Yeah. You know, we come from the same place. We both experienced the passing of my dad. She found him dead, mm. you know, in a, in a chair upstairs, you know. I, so, you know, we, we're, we're, cut, we're cut from that cloth. Did you find when you were going back, I was rolling back a bit here, did you find when you were using uh, heroin, you sent everyone's pushing you away, but Liam and Noel Gallagher, did they clock it and go, right, see you later? Yeah, everyone did. Everyone, okay. Yeah. Once words out, yeah. we, I remember, I'll tell you when it happened, We were there was a show on telly called The White Room and Oasis were, were on The White Room and I was there and, uh, you, the, you know, the usual sort of suspects lurking around backstage and um, another girl, who, and I won't mention her name because it really doesn't matter, but she was in a really successful band at that time and we were all in Oasis's dressing room and, and we both, me and her, knew we had a habit, a heroin habit yeah. and it was we thought it was a secret. It wasn't a secret. And um, she didn't really care who knew. And she shouted across the, the dressing room to me, like, and everyone's there. Simon, you got any smack? Oh. 
and like the temperature just fucking (laughs) dropped you know in the room and um that was kind of the beginning of the end Mm. for me in doing what i was doing and you know what i I didn't no no i didn't set out to do any of that stuff yeah just everything that we've spoken about yeah yeah. i didn't when i was a little kid go right here's what i'm gonna do with my life you know i wanted to be kenny dalgleish when i was a kid and that came obvious quite quickly that was never going to happen then i wanted to be keith richards and i ended up more like keith fucking chegwin (laughs) (laughs) because i always wanted to be someone else somewhere else doing something else right that's at the core of addiction Mm. for me this kind of inability to just be me Mm. today i'm fucking me you know warts and all you know, I'm, I'm all right. Mm. I'm okay. You know, you look, that, you look in a good place, mate. I'm okay. Right yeah. You know, there's there's some things that that could be different yeah. that I need to concern myself with. I still struggle trying to make a few. You know, earn a living yeah. is, is is baffling to me. I don't know how to do that. Yeah. You know, I'm not. I've never been driven by money. Yeah. Um, I have managed to make three albums in the last six years. I've just finished a new one. What's it called? Um, so this new album is called Welcome to Wilderness Hill. Um, and I'm, I'm on Spotify as Hightown Pirates and YouTube as Hightown so Pirates. So your band is called Hightown Town Pirates. Hightown Pirates yeah. is, is where you'll find me. On, yeah. and, and, you know, I've worked with loads of incredible musicians. That We made an album a couple of years ago called All of the Above and everybody who played on that album was in recovery, mm. is in recovery still. Brilliant. Even the studio we recorded it in, it's got a picture of my daughter on the front. It's all pressed up on vinyl. Like for, they're all on the, the new one. Um, it's called Welcome to Wilderness Hill, and I might actually call the new band Wilderness Hill. I don't know yet, yeah. but but if you want to find what I've done in the past, it's mm. High Town Pirates. You know, I genuinely thought life would be boring. I've travelled all over the world. I've seen Liverpool win the league. Yeah, except you weren't allowed to go. <laughs> Got no go. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> believe that. <laughs> After all that time, I had a ticket, and of course you couldn't go. Yeah. It was COVID. Yeah. Um, but I saw us win the Champions League. I went mm. to Madrid, um, so I, I go and watch the Reds when I can. Um, I've made records. I'm watching my daughter grown up. I've been remarried. My wife, Becky, you know, who I've known since I was 10. Really? Yeah. I've had a book published. The book was called, is called Too High, Too Far, Too Soon. It's Too I'm, High, Too, too far, far, Too, too soon. soon. What a name. So, so from the yeah. Waterboys song, The yeah. Hole of the Moon, yeah, yeah, yeah. from Glastonbury 1986. Yeah. So that's, I think, hardback, is it, hard copy is, is out of print at the moment. It's on Kindle. You can pick up a second-hand copy. Mm. That was turned into a play. I did a four-week run in the West End in London playing myself because, quite frankly, no one else is good-looking enough (laughs) (laughs) or stupid enough to do a two-hour non-scripted performance in the West End. But I did that. Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin came, walked up to me afterwards and went, Simon, man, you've blown my mind. That's fucking Jimmy Page. No offence, that's not the bloke from Kasabian. That's fucking Jimmy Page (laughs) from Led Zeppelin. Um, I've met some of my musical heroes. Like? Pete Townsend mm. I met Pete and um, he looked me up and down and, and said you look great mate you yeah. know, and uh, asked about the band and um, you know these are people I've met they're in recovery yeah. it's no secret these guys have been sober for a long time and I, I remember thinking well if these guys with the, the, the genius that they have mm. and let's be clear it's genius mm. it's, they're not you know they're not like me <laughs> mm. And, and all the wealth and, and, and opportunities that they have, if they're staying clean and sober, then really I probably need to do that as well. Yeah. They make it kind of look attractive. And I suppose that's what I try and do in my own way is, is 
show people because not you can tell people it's whatever yeah my experience is not up for debate my experience is my life since 2006 has been anything but boring yeah sat outside that kebab shop yeah. in 2006 was really fucking boring yeah. and sad and lonely and whilst it's not been a cakewalk at times because life's not you know mm. no life's life carries on being life yeah, clean or not yeah you know it isn't yeah. There aren't people throwing rose petals or in front. Oh, look, here he comes. Yeah. You don't get a medal for being clean because most of the rest of the world have been fucking waiting for you to fucking sort your shit out, yeah. you know, and go to work and earn a living. Mm. Well, well done for getting a job. Yeah. You know, <laughs> 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 we've had 25 years off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So we have to find our way, yeah. you know, and um, I, I try and, and, and live a life, and I, like I said, I don't always get it right where. I, I don't harm people mm. and um, be the dad that my daughter can be proud of. And, and, and you know, like I said, I got remarried a few years ago and I left London after 30 years. And um, my wife, Becky, and I, we, we live in Margate. So if you're ever in Margate, come and say come hello. Come say hello. Um, started a little recovery thing down there and trying to, you know, because Margate is, 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 people talk about, oh, it's dead trendy, Shoreditch yeah. on the sea. They mean yeah. Shoreditch 1974. Yeah. It's still some of the most socially deprived neighbourhoods in the country. Mm. There's poverty, you know, there's there's addiction and alcoholism everywhere. Mm. And so I'm trying to do a little bit down there. Mm. Because, I mean, here's the thing, Dodge, right? I do it because it helps me. Yeah, Helps you by helping I'm others. I'm not yeah. a saint, you know. Yeah. I'm not this altruistic... I do all this stuff because ultimately it helps keep me clean. Yeah. That's my responsibility. First and foremost, stay clean and sober yeah. another day. And you take each that, day as it comes. Yeah. 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 And and try and... How long know, have you been with your wife for? So we've known each other, right, since we were 10. We yeah. grew up in the same town. Um, and we lived together in, in London, in, in Hackney, for four or five years and then we got married in 2019 then oh, yeah. we haven't had the honeymoon yet because of old COVID, COVID. stuff yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so um she wants to have a honeymoon at some point so i'm like okay yeah we'll find simon this is this is some some life you've lived this is called eventful lives podcast and this is one of the most eventful well, lives i've listened to on a on a one-to-one -one like this. i still think the best is yet to come yeah i think so i think you look a million dollars by the way thank you you my, do my dream yeah. just putting it out there yeah <laughs> My dream is is to have a band on stage. So the music I make, we have a horn section, Hammond organ player, keyboards, gospel singers. It's really expensive to do that. Yeah. And I don't have any money. Yeah. So all I can do is keep writing the songs in the hope that someone, something one day, someone will go, do you know what? Fucking here, I'll go yeah. and fucking do that. Yeah. And uh, and carry that message. Yeah. Because people say, oh, what's the music of Hightown Pirates like? So... It's a mashup of all the stuff that I like. You can hear the stones, you can hear a bit of jam, you can hear a bit yeah. of the warp, you can hear all this stuff. And this is what other people have said, yeah. by the way, not yeah. me. Yeah. But what I say is it's the sound of redemption. Lovely. Horn sections slamming in and just, you know, and I played it to a couple of friends of mine last night uh, who are you know, in their 70s, born again Christians, yeah. right? <laughs> I, I said, there's a bit of swearing in it. <laughs> and, um, and they listened to a song and they were like, yeah, I understand that. Mm. And and it's a message, you know, and I don't want to sound too self-important, but it's um it's been a real joy for me to that stuff that I wanted to do when I was a little kid. Yeah. When I saw the jam and started jumping around my bedroom with a tennis racket, thinking, you know, addiction robbed me of all that mm. as a young man. I'm very realistic that, you know, no one is gonna give a middle aged guy 
much of an opportunity in the music world. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Whatever. But I'm not going to let that stop, stop me yeah, making music <clears throat> and working with people. And like I said, we just, I think, finished a new album down mm. in Margate. It's been really hard. Mm. been difficult. It's hard to know. make money in music. Well, I, I ain't going to yeah. make any money out of it. Yeah. I... Where can people where can people find you, Sai? Like this, like this is fascinating. Where can people find anyone listening out there who wants to listen to your music and get in contact with you? So I'm on Instagram as High Town Pirates. High Town Pirates on Instagram. Yeah, we're friends on Instagram, yeah, right? Yeah. So I'm also on Twitter as High Town Pirates Wilderness Hill. If you just Google High Town Pirates, yeah, that will bring you, you to me. If you're someone struggling with addiction, you want to talk, and you're a fella. I yeah. don't deal with ladies yeah. that out of my remit. Yeah. But if you're a fella and you want to talk, just hit me up or get hold of Dodge. Yeah. And all I can do is listen and give you some pointers because I know what it's like. You know, I know I've been there. Yeah. I had the fucking T-shirt, smoked the T-shirt, injected the T-shirt, yeah. stole someone else's T-shirt, yeah. then injected that, yeah. you know. Yeah. Two bob, horrible drug addicts, yeah. you know. No glamour in what I did. It was it was really low-end, horrible, nasty stuff, right? And my life's not like that due to the support and help of a lot of people. Yeah. People that have stepped in in recovery, shown me the way, made it look attractive to me. Oh, you know what? I can. It's not this weird religious cult that, I thought, that someone said yeah. it was. It's you know that's going to work for me. Some of the men that have you know supported me, that have repaired the damage that that fucking evil twat did all those years yeah. ago. I have a, a sponsor in NA who's just a regular working class guy who's been clean like Ken. For, yeah. for nearly 30 years, works for Transport for London, just goes to work. You know yeah. what I mean? It's no, no, just a normal fella, but yeah. but I love that man. I love the bones of him, yeah. you know, because he knows me better than I know myself mm. and, and he pulls me up occasionally. Mm. You know, and, and I've pissed a few people off. <laughs> All right? <laughs> you're not doing it right if you haven't pissed yeah. a few people off. You know that, you're yeah. in business, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, and um, I'm going to continue making music. I, I generally think I'm getting better as I get older. I've got more to write about. Yeah, I think I think I think there's huge opportunity there for someone listening now to get in contact with you, because your backstory as well, and the person you've become, and what you've gone through to come out the other end. I need a to, manager to be the to be the human you are now. Yeah. I need a manager. I don't want to save lives. But yeah. that's, that's how I want to do it. Yeah, that's how I want to do it. But it's you know it's it's you've also got to put food on the table. Yeah, yeah. This is a powerful story, Sire. Thank you. This is really, really powerful. I really do appreciate you coming on. Well, I, 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 I just look. I, I can come across as a bit self-important, a bit, you no. know. But, but I generally know. I know yeah. Dodge. I know for yeah. a fact that someone to, who's going to watch, yeah. listen to this, is going to go, okay. Yeah. The best email I ever got after my book was published, and and it got great reviews. And Irving Welsh tweeted about it, and Russell Brand tweeted yeah. about it, and and you know to get Irving Welsh saying. Yeah. Most books about addiction are shit. This one isn't. Yeah. Russell Brand, um, Suzanne Moore, who you know, is an amazing journalist, writes for the Guardian, Vice magazine. All these people said these amazing things. But the problem was, is that the publishers retired from from publishing a few months after my book was published. So there were no more copies. It yeah. was just anyway, whatever. I got an email one day, and it was sent via my then literary agent, and it basically said, "You'll never meet me. I just want you to know." that if someone is fucked up as you can get clean so can I <laughs> quality if I ever get buried and have a, a on your a tombstone <laughs> quote if someone is fucked up as him can get clean so can so you can... goodbye that's a nice way to end right, it on that we're going to end it on that mate but just before we finish yeah. I just want to roll back a bit okay 
You said you haven't spoken to your mum in 10 years. No, 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 I didn't say that. Did you not? No. What did you say? I said, we don't speak much. You don't speak she, much. My mum now is 91. She's got full-blown dementia. Okay. She lives in a care home in Western Supermare. I'm going to see her next Saturday. Yeah. I'm in Bristol with, with my wife and yeah. my wife's sister. So, I'll, But she's gone. Yeah. You dementia. know, the terrible thing about Awful. dementia is that it's, you know, that you lose the person. Yeah. And uh, Even though we... We haven't been close. Yeah. You know, I kind of left home, really, mm. when I went to boarding school. Um, I've got two minutes to tell yeah. you a story. Yeah. So this is from my mum, right? My mum was born in Coventry in 1932, and she told me this story a few years ago before the dementia got her about why she is... Well, it allowed me to understand why she is the way she is. And my mum, like a lot of people of her generation were overly concerned with what they thought other people thought about them. Yeah. It was all about the external stuff. Make sure your curtains are clean and your front steps scrubbed mm. and all that sort of working class. Because my mum was born in a two-up, two-down terraced house, like I said earlier. My dad was born in a room above a mm. pub, right? Mm. I got sent to this school. It wasn't posh. It was a boarding school, but Eton, it certainly fucking wasn't, you know. And um, I struggled with this relationship with my mum all my life. I've never asked her for advice on anything. I have tapped her up for money when I was a junkie because it's a soft target and that's kind of what yeah. I did because I was a bit of a coward. Yeah. And for years I was trying to find some resolution of how I could have a relationship with my mum. Why was she the way she was? Why wouldn't she, you know? So she told me this story. November 1940, I think it was November the 14th, the Coventry Blitz. Mm. So my mum would have been seven or eight years old and her younger brother, my uncle, would have been four or five. Her mum was a housewife and her dad um, was a conscientious objector. So he was an air raid war and didn't want to join the army, didn't want to kill anybody, but wanted to do his bit. So it was historically at that point the biggest air raid in history, the Luftwaffe. They were going to bomb London and they changed their mind and they decided to wipe out the city of Coventry and they attempted to do it. My mum told me this story. She said the... Um, Air raid siren went off, and we didn't have a, an air raid shelter in Anderson shelter, and I got, but next door did. So we went down to next door's garden, me and mummy and Barry, her little brother, and it was just like a bucket for obvious yeah. reasons and a candle. And they stayed there for 12 hours whilst the German Air Force tried to destroy yeah. the city of Coventry mm. and very nearly did. And then the all clear was sounded and she said, her mummy said to me, right, go up Mr. Smith's shop, corner shop, get a pint of milk because, you know, a cup yeah. of tea is the answer yeah, yeah, to yeah. everything, right? Um, and she said, so I went out the back gate and the street opposite was gone, completely gone, right, slick of bombs. And I walked over a couple of dead people. She was just saying, she's yeah. eight years old, yeah. right? Walked over a couple of dead people, got to the corner shop and that was gone as well. It was just rubble. But I found a bottle of HP sauce in the rubble, so I thought I'd take that back. So I walked back down the street, walked over the dead bodies, went to my mummy and said, Mummy, there's no milk, but I've got some HP sauce. She said, my mum turned me around, smacked me on the back of the legs and said, you take that back this instant. We don't want people thinking that we're looters. Wow. And she made her take it back. And things like that, make, that, that affected her entire life. Mm. Mm. Her entire life mm. was driven by what's right and what's wrong, mm. you know, and what people might be thinking. Now, mm. do I care what people think about me? Yes, I do, actually. Mm. Um, does it keep me awake at night? Sometimes. 
my mum's entire life sadly was driven by this kind of what people might think so what I learned from that story was that my mum just wanted to be able to say to her friends that her son was something yeah other than a drug addict yeah. right so I got clean in time before the dementia got my mum yeah for my mum to be able to tell people that her son had got clean yeah. and helped people. And that's all I could ever do yeah, for amazing. my mum. And that's how we'll finish. Amazing. Simon, mate, I've thoubly enjoyed this, mate. Your thank honesty, you. the journey you've been through has been a, a wild one. And thank you for coming on and just speaking your mind. My pleasure. You're a gentleman. Thank you. Good nice man. Good luck, you. Cheers, Simon.